0: The people that were working on this book with me, you know, my agent, my editor, my art director, you know, to be fair about the publishing industry, they're all predominantly white women. And I just, I think there was a misconception that this was a book about body positivity. And so they were expecting it to have a much more like triumphant positive end. And, and while, you know, I do appreciate that body positivity, this wasn't about that. It wasn't just about changing her own mindset about no. herself. It was about dismantling a systemic oppression <laughs> against big bodies.
1: You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Sol Smith. Today, I am chatting with Vashti Harrison. Vashti is the number one New York Times bestselling author and illustrator of the acclaimed collection of children's books, Little Leaders, Little Dreamers, and Little Legends. And today, we are here to talk about her new picture book, Big, which is, as I said to her in the interview, the kind of book that the first time I read it, new, is an instant classic. It's one- Generations will be reading after us. It is such an important contribution to representation of black girls, of fat kids in literature, in kids' literature. There's so much in this book that is so beautiful and so concise in the way it uses images and words, but is doing so much more. So, this was a really moving conversation. Absolutely loved getting to know Vashti, hearing about her process, and about everything that went into this book. And I hope it is really helpful to you in thinking about how to have conversations about anti-fat bias, but also anti-Black racism and adultification with your kids. So here's Vashti, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, And they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick and mortar bookstore. But it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon, including Vashti Harrison, who you'll hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FAT Talk at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Bartos bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash burnttoastbookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. I am so thrilled. As I was just telling you, your book "Big" is a major favorite in our house. Just found it in my daughter's bed the other day. Really, really means a lot to our family. So, really excited to talk to you. So, why don't we start by having you just tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? So,
0: I am primarily an author and illustrator of children's books. Although, author still feels like an awkward new term for me. I feel like I was thrust into the world of writing, but I came to it through drawing. So I've always kind of expressed myself through images. My background is actually in filmmaking. I used to make experimental films, primarily shot on 16 millimeter, very kind of like artsy-fartsy, definitely in a world outside of the commercial art world and definitely outside of making work for young people. But I feel like through the process of learning all of the tools and techniques and traditions of formal art making, I learned a lot of discipline and how to tell stories. And when I kind of rekindled a love for drawing, I felt like so charged and excited to be expressing myself through my hands. Mm-hmm. It felt so different than making movies, which felt like laborious and always required lots of gear and help, Mm. and I felt so empowered to be able to tell any kind of story I wanted through illustration. Not to jump right into the politics of everything, but around the time of the Trump election, I just felt like I wanted to be making positive work. I wanted to be making work for young people, and it just became the only thing I was excited or interested in creating, you know, Images and stories that felt like they were uplifting for young people.
1: I think 2016 had that impact on a lot of us. I can relate to that feeling of the world is burning and how am I going to put anything good into it?
0: I felt like powerless. I felt like I can't do much in this world. I can't change too much or too many people. But, you know, if I can create enough images that connect to people. I was thinking about, weirdly enough, I was thinking about Winnie the Pooh. I was thinking about Pikachu. I was thinking about these characters. When people see them, they say, oh, oh my gosh, I love that character. And that's what I wanted to create. But for Black children, I wanted people to see these images of Black children and have that same response.
1: I think a lot, actually, about how Winnie the Pooh is a sort of stealth fat icon. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. very proud of being short and fat. And there's a lovely way to read both the books and the movie as being super fat positive. Mm -hmm. And yet there's this huge problem in children's media, both books and movies, that I don't need to tell you, of animals being featured more often than Black kids and Black little girls, for sure. We need more. We need different. So tell us about Big, what inspired this book and this story in particular? Well, I suppose
0: starting at the beginning, around the time that I started working on my first book, Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History, I had read this study that came out of the Georgetown Law Center on poverty and inequality called Girlhood Interrupted. And it was my first introduction to the term adultification bias. That is the perception that some children are more adult, more mature more responsible, and more knowledgeable than their age would suggest. It is inherently racialized as it happens at a disproportionate rate with Black children, and especially Black girls. And the study found that adults view Black girls as young as the age of five as less innocent and more adult than their white counterparts. And that results in adults believing that Black girls need less nurturing, less protection, that they need to be comforted less, that they know more about adult topics, and the list goes on. So when I read this study, I felt so emotionally wrenched because I remember being like a really shy kid who took a really long time to kind of come of age. And I just thought about how harmful it is. Or would have been for me to have been presumed, you know, old enough or Mm -hmm. mature enough for things that I was definitely not ready for. And I also thought about all the different metrics that feed into this bias. Skin color, height, voice, body shape, size, and weight. I just, I feared for the girls that were being judged for being too something, too big, Mm
1: -hmm. too
0: tall, too loud. I was thinking about this intersection of adultification bias and anti-fat bias. And, you know, I just felt so charged to tell a story that centered on these things because I felt like I was going through my own emotional journey. I was reflecting on my body and feeling like I wanted to make art that spoke to, you know, self-love mm-hmm. and, and confronting how anti-fat bias had affected me. I didn't know how I would tell that story, but the idea was kind of just ruminating for the time while I was working on the little books, little leaders, little dreamers, little legends. Mm -hmm. Those were nonfiction books and required a lot of research. And i had agreed to do one every year. So I was just like, (laughs) working for a couple years straight. And in the same time, I illustrated this book by Lupita Nyong'o Solway, which is about colorism, a heavy, heavy topic to put in a children's book. So I think in the process of working on all these other books, I was ruminating on that idea And thinking about how to tell my own story. This is my first piece of fiction. The other books that I wrote were nonfiction. And it's my first picture book that I've written and illustrated by myself. So I think the process of working on other people's books and those few years of just kind of ruminating on the ideas helped it all kind of cook It was slow cooking for a while, while some other ideas are in the instant pot. This one was a slow
1: cooker. (laughs) I love that you brought up the Georgetown research. I want to talk about Mm. that a little more. I also was really moved by that when it was published, and I use it a lot in my book, Fat Talk, in talking about bias against fat kids, and particularly, of course, Black girls in schools. It comes up in dress codes and in the conversations around puberty. And something that really moved me about that research was how you hear from the girls themselves. That is so important. I quote a couple of them in the book because that is like just the huge problem with research on these issues often, right? Is that we don't Mm. hear from the kids who are experiencing this. Mm. I'm going to link that in the show notes. I recommend everyone spend some time with that research. It's important to hear from these girls. One girl said, you know, I get dress coded way more than anyone else because I'm in a bigger body. Like I know that something that's, Low cut on another girl goes unremarked on, and on me, it's a problem. I think we often don't realize how much kids are exquisitely aware of how all of these biases are being used against them.
0: And I can say these words, adultification bias and anti fat bias, but I was connecting with these stories of actual girls. The Georgetown Center put out like a really approachable, accessible, short animated video where they use some of those words, and it's like it really just puts it out there for you to really understand. Like, these aren't just data sets. These are real people. These are children Mm -hmm. who deserve so much more than what they're being offered. So I think that's what I wanted to capture
1: in Big. So now tell us, what is the story of Big? (laughs) So
0: Big follows the story of a young girl who, when she is young, when she's first born, The people around her, the adults around her, use such positive words of affirmation. You're such a big girl. You're a big girl now. And that is a good thing. And I wanted to talk about how at a certain point in most girls' lives, particularly in America, big goes from being a positive thing to being a negative thing. I wanted the inciting incident to be something that felt nearly innocuous Mm -hmm. i don't know it's an event it's something that happens but she is changed after it she takes in the words that people say to her and it changes the way she feels about herself and experiences the world It, it is a story about the words we say to one another and also about how we offer children or how we don't offer children the space to change and grow because of these weird expectations about what
1: innocence looks like. Actually, what I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you talk is it is very easy to read big as a somewhat straightforward story of this girl who loves ballet and is too big. I mean, it's because you use text quite sparingly. The pictures are telling the story. And so it's easy to do one read of it. And as I've read it over and over with my daughter, I've gotten deeper and deeper into it. And so now talking to you, I'm understanding just how radical the foundation of this book is. That is easy to pick up and be like, oh, it's a book about little girls in ballet. And it's actually something way more subversive and more powerful than that.
0: I think that is something I kind of struggled with because I worried thinking about all of the subtext I wondered, is this too adult? Am I writing the story as an adult who's gone through and processed all these feelings and making something that is not quite for children? But there is, you know, a surface level story and then there's a subtextual story. On the surface, it is about a young girl who, you know, is full of self love and that changes after an incident on the playground. She starts to internalize these negative words she hears from the people around her and it makes her physically grow on the page so much to the point where she doesn't fit anymore. And at that point, you know, she has to be, you know, confronted with not fitting, with people having problems with that, and you know, fortunately she finds enough self-love. She finds a way to identify what she loves about herself and what she knows to be true about herself and lets go of the things that she knows are not true about her and she makes more space for herself. But you know, it's not a book about ballet. No. Ballet is a tool. It is a metaphor yeah. in this story for, you know, the thing that we love. And in this case, it felt important to show that the thing that she loves is is also about freedom, about moving your body freely. But her joy gets taken away by Mm. these negative words from the people around her and they are just like passing comments. I don't think many of the people know that those words stuck to her, stuck with her and are changing her changing the way she feels and exists one of the things that changes for her is she you know as her body starts physically growing for anyone who hasn't seen it she you know things start changing for her and she grows larger than the size of her bed and then in the next image she's 10 feet tall and can't fit in her desk at school and that's a visual image that's you know kind of silly but I also was thinking about The way that Black girls get pushed out of school, that they are not offered the opportunity to have (laughs) different bodies or be silly and be loud because they are being judged for being too much or too something or Mm -hmm. too adult and are regularly getting punished at higher rates and that is directly correlated to the school to prison pipeline. So there are things that I was thinking about in this book that you wouldn't quite know if I didn't tell you, but it's all there for me.
1: I love that you're saying maybe it's not a book for kids. I think the best children's books often aren't entirely for kids or at least work on many different levels. I mean, this is not a perfect comparison by any means because your book is doing something quite different and more groundbreaking. But I wrote a piece recently for the newsletter about revisiting Eloise with my daughter. Mm. And Eloise is not intended to be a book for children. Kay Thompson actually didn't even like kids, was really adamant about the fact that she kind of wrote it for like her gay cabaret fans. And of course, children adore it, right? And little girls adore it. And people embrace it as this like, you know, rambunctious little girl story, which is powerful, especially at the time. I think there's something really valuable in kids' books when the author has this whole other mission. And I think kids do get it. Like, I think the reason I loved Eloise as a little girl is because she represented some freedom to me that I wasn't feeling in my own life. I was, like, such a good girl, not a rule-breaker ever. And it was helpful Mm -hmm. for me to see this representation of femininity that wasn't just like perfect little good girl. And I think the kids reading your books are having an even more profound experience of seeing themselves and seeing you put into pictures the emotional experiences they're having in their lives. Like, that's huge. It's huge.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. It is the highest form of praise when I hear that a kid loves the book, that a kid is reading it over and over again. I was scared throughout the entire process if I was doing the right thing, mainly because I read a review. You're not supposed to read the reviews, oh, the but worst. I <laughs> I read, I, so I illustrated this book by Lupita Nyong'o called Soul Way that is you know, a fictionalization of her childhood experiences growing up as the darkest person in her family. In this story, this little girl has to, you know, go on this adventure and, you know, hear these stories of night and day. And in the end, she learns to love the color of her skin. And, you know, as the person illustrating the book, I wanted it to be a fun book. I wanted it to look really beautiful and magical. And she does go on this adventure. And I wanted it to feel like something that a kid would feel comfortable coming back to, even though there are some, you know, harder things to talk about in this book. But, you know, I read (laughs) this review by a parent who said, like, my kid did not have any anxieties about the color of her skin before this book. And now she does. And, it's all your fault. And I was like, it is all my fault. But I also believe, like, this book couldn't have created something that didn't, no. you know, that didn't exist. So I, I try to keep that thought a little bit closer to me because it is my fear that, you know, this book would incite, you know, an anxiety or a fear that wasn't present in a child before.
1: This was something I wanted to ask you about because it is something I hear often from parents. You know, I, Do a lot of work reporting and thinking about how we talk to our kids about the issues of anti fatness and diet culture. And often parents will say to me, Well, it's too early. I don't want to bring this up now because I'll put this in their heads. And I really feel that the research shows quite clearly about both adultification bias and anti fat bias that kids are learning about it really young. And I think it's a privilege to be able to think you can keep your kid in a bubble and not have them engaging with any of these things like only thin white kids get that option in life and so if you're raising a thin white kid I think your responsibility is to be talking about the stuff with them just as early as their peers are going to be dealing with it
0: I'm sort of reminded of the same sort of turn of phrase when folks say that it's too early to talk to your kids about race and racism but for black children, that is rarely an option. It is a thing that exists and we are going to encounter it no matter what. So yeah, it does come from a place of privilege to say like, no, that's too early for my kid. Obviously, you know, each individual parent and child or, you know, adult and child experience is different. And as a very sensitive kid, I definitely would have appreciated someone taking care in the way they spoke to me. But when addressing these larger, heavy things in our society, it is, you know, it is rarely an option that we won't encounter it. And I think particularly with big, it's talking about the way that adults use words with children. And it is so ubiquitous in our society to use language to talk about children's bodies as this good or bad thing. And the call might be coming from inside the house. I'm trying to make an appeal for all of us to address the way we use this language. Mm -hmm. I think in order to dismantle hatred, we have to address it. And so if you're not aware of all of these things, how can we properly fight it together?
1: I think really often the parents who are saying it's too early what they're really saying is, I'm not ready to have this talk. I don't know what I'm going to say. And we need maybe to give parents, and this is more my job than yours, give parents more tools on how to have the talks so that they can tackle that. But, you know, texts like big are this gift because they give you this way into it. And again, this is a maybe a sort of tangential example, but I was actually just talking to a mom this week who was really anxious about letting her 10-year-old see the Barbie movie. Because she was like, you know, I've always been so careful not to, like, expose her to diet culture and expose her to these body ideals. And is the Barbie movie age appropriate? Like, can she handle it? She has so much confidence right now. I don't want to destroy that. And I totally get that instinct to want to protect our kids. And something like the Barbie movie is a great way to, like, it is doing some subversive stuff. It's not going far enough. Like, there's a lot you can talk to a 10-year-old about that movie with. But I could see it was a lot of her fear of how will I navigate the conversations Mm -hmm. that come up there. I think we need to be a little less afraid of the hard conversations.
0: Yeah, man, I can't presume to know what it is to be a parent. I don't have kids, so I know that it's every every subject is a new, complicated thing to deal with. I, I don't expect it to be easy. I sort of feel like if you arm them with the, you know, compassion, with the love, with the self love for their own bodies, then hopefully they'll have, you know, the defenses up for, you know, weird references to cellulite
1: in Barbie. (laughs) And like, maybe they'll bump on. We
0: were, we were doing really great. And then, you know, not, not every (laughs) moment is a a win, but.
1: (laughs) Okay. This is maybe giving Barbie more credit than I need to give, but I actually think there's a subversive reading of the cellulite thing, which Mm -hmm. is. She develops the cellulite along with her thoughts of death because she's becoming a more fully formed human being. And part of being a fully formed human being is having a body that changes and ages and is going to yeah. have things like cellulite. And that even though her initial reaction is like, no, I want the high heel. I don't want the cellulite. That would be terrible. Keep me here. She does ultimately embrace the version of herself that's going to have the cellulite and is going to age. But I may be be being too kind. It's I will
0: hear that. I just feel like it could have been something else. I felt like, you know, I think maybe cellulite was like a trigger word. It was like, oh, yeah, here we are, back in two thousand two, totally. But I think you know, it was the like the difference from being like your body is made out of plastic to your body is real, right? It is
1: right. Human. real bodies have cellulite this is about right but I did hear from parents who were like but my kid didn't even know what cellulite was and now right, I yeah and I get that that's a bummer to have to introduce them to the concept of cellulite but I will never forget my stepmother who's an amazing feminist when I was like 18 and I was worrying about cellulite and she looks at me and she goes it's bullshit Virginia it's made up like it's just the cosmetic industry that wants you it's just skin you're just talking mm-hmm. about skin <laughs> 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 but anyway back to your more important and more powerful book Something that the book does so well is we see adults talking about her body and we see her absorbing what they're saying. And I think maybe some of this discomfort, too, comes from parents knowing, like, I've probably said something I shouldn't. I know oh, my kid really did absorb it. And you hold up a mirror to that so powerfully. And I really love the moment at the end of the book where she tells the grownups she doesn't want to change her body and that they've been offering the wrong kind of help. And that just feels so radical for kids to see a kid advocating for herself like that. I
0: struggled with knowing exactly how to end this book. It doesn't have that sort of like third act triumphant win, but it's there. It's just way more quiet. I think like on an unconscious level i needed to share that the journey towards self-love is a personal one mm-hmm. and i remember having conversations with my editor about how the girl gets there about like maybe needing another character or another conversation to achieve essentially like a clearer story arc but i just i kept pushing back against that and i couldn't quite verbalize like why she needed to just be alone mm-hmm. looking back on it now I feel like to include other characters, like, you know, other adults or other kids or, you know, parents or friends, that it would be too easy to turn them into the heroes or villains of her story. Mm -hmm. And in the end, she saves herself. Yeah. It's quiet, but it's resolute. You know, she, in the final spread, she dances and she moves her body. She is unhindered and taking up space and completely free within herself. and. I think I just knew that there were going to be people who are going to attempt to say, like, you're big. I can help you. I can fix you. I can make you be smaller.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's so easy. Let me show you. <laughs> and I just, I wanted her to have this look on her face of just like, oh, you just, you don't get it. It's okay. I I've got it. I'm okay. Yeah. I will be okay. And that, like, girl, I wish I wish I could be that strong. It's <laughs> yeah. it yeah. is an aspirational thing.
1: It also shows a very real facet of this, which is often as we are working on becoming resolute and becoming accepting of ourselves. We also have to accept that people who love us can love us and get it wrong. And you show her being able to love them even though their advice and their solutions for her are not the right advice and solutions. And I think that is a tension that's its something we're all navigating all the time.
0: The people that were working on this book with me, you know, my agent, my editor, my art director, you know, to be fair about the publishing industry, they're all predominantly white women. And I just, I think there was a misconception that this was a book about body positivity. And so they were expecting it to have a much more like triumphant positive end. And and while, you know, I do appreciate that body positivity, this wasn't about that. It wasn't just about changing her own mindset about herself. It was about dismantling a systemic oppression Mm -hmm. (laughs) against big bodies. And that felt like a much bigger thing to tackle that, you know, one person can't do Alone, but the journey towards self love, at least I felt was very personal and quiet. And the book is a very internal story. You know, Mm -hmm. we see everything through her perspective. You know, the other people aren't fully rendered. Everything is in this, like, shade of pink. They're sort of the ideas of other people. So it doesn't feel like we're in the grounded real world. And so for me, that was to further push the idea that we're inside of her lens, her perspective, her world. Yeah, I think, you know, it could have looked very different. It could have been a very different story if it was about and body positivity?
1: I think we have picture books that are more firmly body positive. I think they can be useful additions to these conversations with kids. And I think body positivity has left so many people out and it has yeah. failed to deal with the systemic bias of it all in such right. a profound way that we don't need to be teaching kids that there are simple solutions to any of this and that all you have to do is love yourself. What a disservice that is. Like, that's not going to help you survive the world. That's nice to have, but it's not the solution. I am curious, though, as you were working on this book, and clearly as it was such a long process, as you said, did working on it change your own thinking about bodies? Did it sort of shift your relationship with your own body in any ways? I think
0: this is an aspirational book. I feel like I can look to this girl as a hero for me. I, mm-hmm. I think she gets there and I'm still on this journey. You know, even in the process of writing it, I just felt like I was, you know, picking at an open wound. So it just made it even harder to, to create. But I think it was, you know, a hopeful kind of creative process. I think my own journey, it has so many ups and downs. And you know, I'm still struggling. I think, you know, every every day, I sort of feel like, oh gosh, am I am I going to be a hypocrite if I f- start going <laughs> going to this new gym? I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's hard. I don't have too big of a community around me, and like my closest ally is like an untrustworthy ally. They're talking about Wegovi and mm-hmm. you know joining the next diet. <laughs> So it's, it feels like I am constantly bombarded with, you know, diet culture. But, you know, I've always felt like in my own family, it's really hard to try to, you know, be on a journey towards, you know, essentially neutrality. Mm-hmm. When in my family, everyone values like working extra hard towards something. And so it can feel like to them I'm a failure or to them i'm like giving up or something mm-hmm. i don't know i am still parsing all of this stuff out but yeah. i think that's what's helpful about making art is sort of you know letting everything out and sort of sorting through all of these feelings through storytelling but yeah i think my journey is sometimes like one step forward two steps back sometimes it's two steps forward one step back but mm-hmm. you know I think it's so easy for me to want to stand up for other people, and it's just still so hard to do that for myself. You know, I want to make a world where children do not have to face any of the, like, diet culture nonsense that Mm -hmm. I had to face all through childhood, all through my family home life. And I will go to the ends of the world to say, like, they deserve as much time and space and care to have their bodies change and grow and look however they need to as long as they are you know happy and healthy a lot harder for myself to do that
1: i think a lot about how it's really important that people know you can be in this fight and you can be working towards this even if you're struggling yourself i think there's often this perception and i think this is one of the things body positivity has not helped with is that there's this idea that in order to be a good advocate on these issues, you need to totally love yourself. You need to never be dieting. You need to be completely divested from diet culture, have this like unimpeachable resume of body mm-hmm. acceptance.
0: And sometimes I think about that for myself, like, oh, gosh, I'm supposed to look this way. I'm supposed to have this for, for the people who look to me. But.
1: but I mean, it's a stealth diet mentality to hold yourself to that kind of perfect standard of perfection. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's the other people telling us we have to follow Mm -hmm. all of these rules in order to be worthy, in order to fit in. Like, you can be doing this in your own way. You can be messy. We are humans. We are messy. This is not easy. We are dealing with so much pressure and so many conflicting messages all the time. And to expect none of it to land and you to just always be able to, I mean, it's just like, that's not how we're built.
0: I think what you're saying applies to so many other things, too. I feel like in my career, I feel like I skyrocketed really, really fast. And, you know, I didn't get to spend enough time being a student of my field. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I really don't feel like I have the authority to be the authority on these things. Sure. So, honestly, it feels like to expect perfection is, you know, a fallacy, But maybe that's the perfection that Barbie was talking about.
1: (laughs) Yes, but it does always come back to Barbie. I mean, universal truths of the Barbie movie. I mean, all of this is a survival strategy, right? Like participating in diet culture, beauty culture, Barbie, whatever. All of it is what we have been told we have to do to be safe and survive in this world. And how much you can let go of all of that is going to be such an individual thing. And some people can let go of a lot of it really easily, and that's probably people who have a lot of privilege in other ways protecting them. And there's other people who can't let go of a lot of it even if you can recognize all the problems in the system. And you don't want to be supporting that system. So then you're giving us the gift of big. You're contributing in such a powerful way. You have done enough. <laughs> you've done mm. you have you've done so much and Whatever you're dealing with personally is your business. That's where I land on it. If we believe in body Mm -hmm. autonomy, we have to believe in that. Right. Well, I am so grateful for this book. I already adored it. And talking to you about it gives me so many more layers of appreciation for what went into this. I understand it's probably stressful to hear this, as you just talked about, the pressures of skyrocketing fast. But I really think it is an instant classic that we are going to be reading for generations. So, you know, no pressure there, but good job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: That is the hugest honor and the biggest fear. It's so scary.
1: (laughs) Totally. Totally. Absolutely. So, Vashti, what is your butter today?
0: I've got maybe two butters. love it. And one of them is related to Barbie. Amazing. But it (laughs) is the amount of pink that I'm seeing everywhere, which is related to my book, Big, which features a lot of pink. Yes. And I think, you know, it is related, sure, to ballet. The character in the book likes to dance. But my choice in making the book fully told through this lens is pink is this girl's character. This is her. This is this character's color. Mm -hmm. I associate this color with her. And through the arc of the book, we see that color, you know, we see glimpses of what it could be when she's feeling really hopeful and full of love. And we see that color get dimmed and it gets grayer and grayer. And then we see it fully return back to its saturation where she is, again, seeing a future for herself, seeing what she knows to be true about herself. And I remember being a kid and pink being so uncool, like, oh, you play with Barbies, like, mm. ugh pink and I love pink and I like seeing it everywhere so that is my joy and then my other butter is right now summer 2023 like our economy is somehow being boosted by Taylor Swift Beyonce Mm -hmm. and Barbie fans Mm -hmm. like I feel so (laughs) excited to know that people are you know finding community and I heard today that Michaels had a three hundred percent sales boost in crafting supplies because of people making friendship bracelets, which is also a callback to my childhood. So I feel really grateful to know that people are crafting and expressing themselves through through these, you know, things that people often have in our culture told us are silly, absurd childish, girly things, Mm -hmm. crafting and beading and making friendship bracelets. So I'm all about celebrating girl power, bringing our economy back.
1: I also really love pink. And I do have two daughters who don't like pink. But I think that's a stage. I think it's a necessary Mm -hmm. rejection of their mother. It's fine. And it is also, as a feminist, I made a conscious choice not to like give them a lot of pink clothes. And it's hard when you have two girls All of the baby gifts are like Pink Mary Jane's. Mm -hmm. I had to draw some lines. But now that they're older and we can talk about all of these complicated conversations, Mm -hmm. I'm like steadily bringing more pink into like our home decor, into my wardrobe. So yeah, I'm also here for the reclaiming and the rebranding of pink, I think is great. Yeah, I mean,
0: I'll just add one more thing. I feel like in the choice of using pink for big, it was, you know, an additional step in that in color theory pink is associated with gentle love and care and that is something that I want for black girls and I wanted for this girl at at the center of my story so you know sure pink has its connotations in our society but also like I also appreciate that you know When we think of pink flowers that represent nurturing and love, I want to
1: offer that to all Mm. girls. Well, those were amazing betters. Mine is far more prosaic, but it is something bringing me joy right now. It's a set of photo frames I got Mm. off Amazon. I apologize. trying to divest. But as we just discussed, we're messy human beings. And Amazon Prime (laughs) does still Mm -hmm. own my soul. Anyway, these are these really nice, chunky, acrylic, like frameless, like they're just like square acrylic photo frames. There's a link. I can put a link in the chat for you if you are curious to see them. So these are these clear acrylic picture frames. They're really chunky Mm -hmm. and they're magnetic. So they're really easy to open and close and swap out what you want to put in them. So they're great for, like, kid art because, like, you know, we want to, like, frame and treasure our kids' art. But there's also, like, an endless mountain of kids' art. So I like being able to swap it in and out. I got the little 4 by 4 inch ones that are pretty small. And I have in them, I had picked up Phoebe Wall, you know, that mm-hmm. illustrator, Phoebe. Yeah. Friend of the show, Phoebe. She has a great set of anti-diet fat-positive stickers that I picked mm-hmm. up recently at my local bookstore. And I wanted to do something special with them. And I was like, I'm going to put them in these little frames. And they're so cute. And they're just like popped around my house now. And they're bringing me a lot of fat positive joy. I love that.
0: Yeah, I discovered these frames somewhere in the middle of the lockdown of 2020. Oh, yeah? And started putting my little collages in there because (gasps) I didn't want to, like, paste them down. I liked to look at how delicate they were. And so they're perfect for these things. I've given a lot of them away at this point, but I have a few left around my room.
1: I love that you already know about them. They're such good frames. They come in a ton of different sizes. They're not super expensive, so... Yeah, and they're acrylic, so they can't break, which is useful in a house with children and a excited dog. So, yeah, <laughs> win-win. Well, Vashti, thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. I loved having you here. Tell folks where we can follow you and how we can support your work.
0: I am on Instagram and other platforms at Vashti Harrison. Who knows what platforms we'll be using in the future, but I'll likely (laughs) be at Vashti Harrison everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you can find my work and some of my illustrations on my website, VashtiHarrison.com. Thank
1: you for being here. I so appreciate it. Thank
0: you so much. This was amazing.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and leave us a rating or review. These really help more folks find the show and help us grow. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more by clicking the link in your episode description or go to virginia The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting Anti-Diet, Body Liberation Journalism.